invite uh, Howard Brown to come on up here, uh, Reverend Howard Brown. Come on up here. Um, Howard Brown is an ordained uh, minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, he's senior pastor of Christ Central Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. His greatest claim to fame is that he once went to seminary with Greg Johnson. Um, <laughs> but he also did some other stuff. He planted a church. He met an amazing woman, got married to her. She's from the coolest city on the planet. She's from St. Louis. And uh, they've got uh, uh, two boys who are here in the service today. And uh, Howard uh, has degrees uh, from, uh, you went to Clemson, right? Clemson, as well prayed as all prayed all night long, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, then uh, uh, Covenant Seminary. Um, Howard, thank you for coming and preaching the Word of God to us. Uh, and so, uh, wow, you have a clock up here. <clears throat> um, as he said, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina, and just so you know, we are here. Um, in St. Louis this weekend, we attended the LDR conference. Um, some of y'all were there? Okay, good, good, good. They list, you know, who's going to be preaching at different churches. At least we got one person here to see me from the conference. They had my name in the little letters. Everybody else is in the big. Um, but uh, I'm glad to be with you guys um, today. And um, I want to thank... Um, some interns and members at Christ Center Church that traveled with us and came to the conference. Also, our assisted pastor, Charles McKnight, his family are here today um, from Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, he'll be planting a church and, uh, in about a year, so we are looking forward. Why don't y'all just stand up if you came from Charlotte? Go on. Also want to thank my uh, brother-in-law and his wife from coming. Go ahead and stand up for me, Calvin and uh, Marilyn. And, uh, and he was born and raised in St. Louis, too, even though he's a police officer or correctional, correctional officer. What? Police officer. The popo? Um, the police officer in Memphis. Uh, Tennessee. So thank you guys for coming. Um, Let me read the word to you from Revelation 7. We've already gone here in our worship service. This is the word of God. Revelation 7, beginning at verse 9. And it says this, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Said to him, Sir, you know. 
And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We ask that by your spirit you would speak to us. That what we will hear will go deeper than our minds, past our ears, and into our souls. Lord, we pray for real change, real transformation that only comes by faith, by grace, by the finished work of Christ and by the real move of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Do this by the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I'm dating myself a bit, but remember that corny song from the 80s? 1982, that is, by Stevie Wonder, black, and Paul McCartney, white. And when we planted Christ Central, I co-planted with Pastor Giorgio, a white guy, and we would cynically sing it at times. When describing our work together in Charlotte at Christ Central Church, do you remember the words to that song? Ebony and ivory live together in perfect harmony, side by side on my piano keyboard. Oh, Lord, why don't we? We all know that people are the same wherever we go. There is good and bad in everyone. We learn to live, we learn to give each other what we need to survive. Together alive. I can't help it. (laughs) Ebony and Ivory live together in perfect harmony, side by side on my keyboard. Oh, Lord, why don't we? And that's it. That's the whole song. They created a music video out of that song. You know why we laugh when we hear that corny song? Because it, why? Because it is so corny. We use it as fuel for our nostalgic cynicism. Because for the world, it's silly to believe it could happen. And then to put some hopefully minded song out about it, complete with blind black man and never had a black member near Beatles' former member. It's so 80s optimistic montage, Right? We're at the end of things. The black guy and the white guy are breakdancing to raise, help, help raise money for the inner city clinic and dance studio for all the kids, that kind of thing. You know. It's that Coke commercial of the early 70s. I'm really dating myself. You have seen it, some of you, with all the people gathered hand in hand around the world and they're passing the Coke and, and different people on the hillside singing, I'd love to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow-white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. It's the real thing. Coke, what the world wants today. 
I thank God for the bitter, discouraged, and depressed 90s crushing all of that. (laughs) Thank Kurt Cobain. Thanks, NWA. Well, church, God has given us here in Revelation a vision of what must, can, and will happen. And in this passage, it's not just ebony and ivory, but chocolate and caramel and lemon and butter pecan and peach and strawberry, right? And these are not actors or entertainers. This is about real people not saying their part only, but doing their part and giving praise to God their maker with and in real, redeemed, perfect harmony. We must let this vision, not the one with um, apple trees and honeybees, but this vision of eclectic community we see here in Revelation 7 call us to a mission of gospel, racial, and ethnic diversity and harmony. It is a call, number one, that requires we know the people of our world. Secondly, that we bring justice to the world of people. And finally, that we play our part in calling the world to worship. First, we must know the people of our world. Let me tell you that this picture of harmony, of eclectic community and communion of people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation harmonize in part because they hit the same chord of being known. They declare the incarnational glory of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to know them, that Jesus was not ignorant to their struggles, to all that it represented. Jesus gave himself to this representative world of people. They are covered in his blood-washed robes, which tell us that all of who they are has been known and dealt with by the living Lord, who in his very body felt and feels and sees all they have been through, so much so, the scripture tells us the end here, that God the Father is able to wipe every tear. That's every tear of every person, with each tear representing every injustice and every sin against all that they are as a people and tribe and tongue and nation. One of the greatest adversaries and discords to, to what I would describe as the per, for the perfect racial harmony that we see in scripture is ignorance. And now it's become a theme for people that, man, you don't know me. You don't see me. You treat me like you don't care. My tears and my struggle mean nothing to you. You don't feel me. In John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, the character Doughboy, played by West Coast NWA spawned rapper turned actor Ice Cube, drops this memorable quote at the end of the movie once all kind of horrors has gone through his life. Either they don't know, don't show, or don't care about what's going on in the hood. The point, ignorance has led to discord and disconnect and ignorant fear among people in this country. It's been 11 years since Hurricane Katrina hit the bayou, right? And I remember like it was yesterday, and now Beyonce has brought it back up in her video for her hit song, Formation. But how that hurricane exposed 
the unseen and unknown or ignored racial and economic and class disparity in our country. We had General Assembly in Alabama this year. So the assistant pastor Charles and I, we decided, let's, go, let's fly into New Orleans. It's about $300, $400 cheaper. Let's just go there for a couple of days. Let's try to eat the city. I got, the city ate me. It was, <laughs> I got some type of gallbladder thing. It was, it was too much. It was bad. And we would talk to people, tell us about what it's been like since Katrina. And they're like, we're rebuilding. But as we heard the stories, it's almost like poverty was washed ashore. Like poverty that was, that was kind of hidden and, and dug into to the mud heaps in a city like New Orleans. Like when that flood came in, it kind of pulled everybody out of the graves. I mean, it just pulled people out of the graves of their poverty. And for the first time, people could see a city that had built on top of poor people and displaced and misplaced people. And this scripture is like a flood, right? Calling us to see the displaced, the people who are ignored, the poor. Our brothers and sisters. Jesus calling his people who are his body to not only be known, but to know. To be familiar with the world, to see them, to hear the stories, to feel them. But to leave it at that would just lead us to a dead-end generalization that if you just watch all the black movies you can, you'll understand who I am. No, please don't do that. Because we, especially those not in a dominant culture, when I say dominant culture, those who are in charge situationally, institutionally, historically at the time, know what it's like to be stereotyped. So it's not just a knowledge of, of, of just a nation of people, but every tribe of the nation of those people. This is really specific and distinct understanding of who people are. And it requires, therefore, more than just an outside knowledge. It requires more than just reading a book again and, and, and watching a movie that breeds stereotypes. It requires an entering into the world of people through relationships. The Bible says here in verse 15 that he will shelter them with his presence. Another translation says that he will extend his tent over them. And when I saw the word tent, it immediately made me think of summertime family reunions. And you can tell a family reunion because they all got those cheap, bright t-shirts. They all bright in the wrong color because that's what's on sale. All yellow with the family around. And you can just see at a park on, in a summer, this pavilion and that pavilion and that one. And they're all wearing the same colors. And you're like, you with that family and this family. And most times they're the same color. You can just tell that's that family. Because they're under the same tent. God has called us to enter into relationship, real relationship with people of this world like his own son did, knowing and touching and have conversation and being touched by the world of people. Especially in this political season. Yeah, let's get a little sticky here. It's going to get worse before it gets better. There's a lot of fear-mongering. when it comes down to immigration of certain people groups that look like terrorists or 
criminals. And it's easy as Christians, especially in PCA churches where you're conservative and, and tend to lead on the, lean on the evangelical right-wing side of things because of the two issues of homosexuality and marriage and, and stuff, which are important. But we tend to take whole hog other things that affect the eschatological, that, that final picture of every tribe and nation and tongue. And now, believe it or not, because of our politics, we've become prejudiced against what God's eschatology looks like here. How is it that you stand on the other side of the line politically and it puts you on the other side of the line for what God intends to happen and who God intends to be your brothers and sisters in the final picture. I read a New York Times article about Middle Eastern Christianity and how it may be the end of Christianity in the Middle East. Because ISIS is focusing on Middle Eastern Christians. What's interesting to me, these are people that look like the people that you may not want in your country. That people say, you don't want these folk in your country. And for us to whole hog, take Jew, uh, Israel as, as the country that we support over Palestine. How can this be when there are a number of Palestinian brothers and sisters who will be in this final picture with us? How can we whole hog do that? It's almost better to say, hey man, let's side with these folk because it helps us in wars we want to win. That'd be better than make it a biblical thing. It's bad theology to say you side with Israel because they're God's special people. The eschatological picture tells us who God's special people are and God's people are those who are chosen by grace to be in this final picture regardless of tribe and nation and tongue. And this isn't just reading an article. I thank God for people like Asa and Nabal in my life. Palestinian Christians who tell stories how they're persecuted in Israel by the Jews for being not Palestinian, but Palestinian Christians. Oh man, Jesus liked to mess the picture up, doesn't he? How she lost a baby. My friend's Ace's mom, uh, Ace's mom lost a child because she was on a bus in Palestine and a group of Jews heard that she was Palestinian and that she was a Christian and they pushed her on the ground, kicked her, and she lost a child. Do you know your brothers and sisters who are part of the eschatological, that final picture that Christ promised? We have a couple of members in our church, Bill and Charlie Marquardt. Now, we have many people who've adopted children outside of their race. Let me tell you about the Marquardt. He's an elder at our church. They were part of our core family, planted, helped plant the church. Man, they are so, you know, right. They are the picture of Southern evangelical, well-doing Christians who should be on the other side of Hispanic immigration. In fact, they were. 
until they adopted two children, two Hispanic children. And all of a sudden, (laughs) there are these incredible, awkward, out of place at the party, right? People who say, no, we can't have this kind of stereotyping going on. We can't have, I'm worried for my son being stopped by the police now. I'm worried for my daughter, right, being mistreated. And now, right, for, for Wesley and Anna Bryan, those are their names in our congregation. That, those are like my, my niece and nephew, and now I'm worried about it. What has God done in the church? He's created a family, and now we own each other's struggles, Because we know them. They're our brothers and sisters. We have conversations with them. We know their story. We eat at the table with them. We must come to a place and go to places where we can look into eyes and touch skin and be moved and changed by people who personally give us their stories as friends and neighbors that God calls us to treat with a familial respect and love. And maybe it's being in a church like Christ Central Church, like we kind of diverse. Or maybe it means being a part of social groups or even schools that aren't so homogenous. And here's the deal. (laughs) This is going to be the hard one. Expect to feel ignorant. Because you are. Because we are. Surprise to some of us who think we know everything or have seen every angle of every race. You don't. You can't. Expect to not get it the first time around or the second time around. Why should you? People are complicated. And racism and classism that have been, you know, put in our minds and hearts all these years in this country and all the years we've lived are of most deadly and determined parasites in our world. And I'm with you. I've made some stupid jokes. I've said some dumb things. You know, you make a joke and a whole room goes quiet. That's me. I'm one of those people whose breath smells like shoe polish, right? I'm always putting my foot in my mouth because my mouth is always open. And it's always open because I think I know. I did a conference recently to college kids in our denomination, college ministry kids. And I asked them, what's your fear of reaching outside of your people group? We're afraid of looking stupid. We're afraid of being uncomfortable. Ready for the privilege thing? It, it hits home. We're afraid of entering any relational situation where we don't look competent. We don't want to be in any situation where we are out of control. I've got to know it, and I've got to be able to, because if I know it, if I understand the parameters of a people, if I can stereotype people, if I can already have my categories together, then when I go in the of competency and control and privilege can be mine even when I go and talk to somebody else who's different than me.
Maybe God wants us to be in relationships where we are the one wanting. Where we're the ones who are lost. Welcome to the world of somebody who feels like and is described as a minority. Well, you can't figure it all out. You're a little lost. Face it, you will say something stupid. You will. Happens all the time at Christ Central. Sometimes people don't say anything. Sometimes I hear things. Jokes, political jokes. And I'm like, you don't know who you're talking to. I hear all kind of, I'm like, do you know that this uh, person in our church uh, works for the Hillary Clinton campaign? Yeah, at Christ Central we have people who work for the Hillary Clinton campaign. And we have people who work for the Republican Party. They all are there. And so you can't say stupid jokes all the time. But guess what? You will. Is getting to know people. And your competency will not be a buoy for you. 20 Oaks. Y'all know that church. It's a church I went to, McKelly and I. And they had Multicultural Day. Think Multicultural Day on the office, y'all. That was the experience for us. Michael leading Multicultural Day. I couldn't get through that show. You know, it, it's, it was so ridiculous when I watched that show, that particular episode. I had to watch it in parts because it was ridiculous. I just couldn't take it. I remember we went there, and they had this song. Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, he is precious in their sight. So they did this long song. It was real creative. And when they got to Jesus loved the little children, red, they stopped and did the Florida State thing, oh, 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 in church. When they got the yellow, some of the kids did their little eyes like this, and did little, like the accent. When it was the black time, they did jazz music. There wasn't a white time. You know why? Because that was the right time. Everything else was a variation. We went to Multicultural Day Continued. It, it, it got worse, just like the office. Because afterwards, we went to the food part, where they had food from different places where there were mission trips. And this is not about Twin Oaks. This is about Multicultural Day that day. Okay? I love the church. We went there. It was great. Except for Multicultural Day that day. <laughs> so we were in line, getting our food. And you know, had people food from different countries, and went to the youth table, and they had done some inner city mission. Oh, Lord. So they had barbecue sandwiches. We were like, Kelly, my wife, was like, what's barbecue sandwiches got to do with in slaw? They were like, well, we didn't know what to do. We looked at the different foods, and we just went with something easy. And so a wife of an elder says, yeah, that's right, because inner city food would be ribs and watermelon, right? Welcome to what the real world of what it would mean to be in one community in one place getting to know each other. 
we're going to make mistakes. It's a mission to, like it did Jesus, make you have to go and live in another world between yours and theirs and love and long for justice for them. We must bring justice to the world of people. Jesus here brings these people into harmony before God in heaven because he has taken away their guilt and provided justice and righteousness for them. Remember the whole, the whole them, the, 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 their, their people group, tribe, tongue, and nation? All of that has been reconciled rightly and justly before God and in them. And then we have this ironic but powerful image in verse 14. It says this, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The image is ironic because two things that don't go well together is white clothing and blood stains. Yet the, stain, yet, yet the text says that these are they which are there together in unified wonder, marked, if you will, as unified because they all wear the same thing. Not just white robes, but robes washed in the blood of Jesus, that they have been justified, given justice and rightness before God and themselves and others, rescued, if you will, from a world of sin and injustices because of Jesus. And the bloody image is more than what we would use as the passivity of the crucifixion dying for the sins they've done, but those done against them. And, and, the, and this is about the tenacity and struggle and fight to save human beings from the bondage of stuff like racism and classism. It is safe to say Jesus fought and bled for justice. But also look at verse 15 through 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, for the lamb, excuse me, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The shelter or tent here means freedom, guys. Finally rest from slavery and classism. The tent means no longer working for a cruel master, no longer walking and journeying and not having a home. No longer, this would be the, the scorching sun. It means no longer being an alien, right? Not having a house, just wandering all over the place. Or working mercifully, right? Mercifully. Is, right? Sorry. Working without mercy at the hands of oppression. To no longer unjustly being hungry or forgotten and having the resources be misappropriated, even in the name of capitalism or free market. No longer any people who are unjustly defined and mistreated as the haves and have nots. They all sit in equal dignity under God's glorious shelter. And let me tell you, Jesus fought for and bled for that liberation. Man, we are in a great situation at Christ Central in some ways. Sometimes it gets hard. We have a building we share with a group called Project 658, and they do refugee ministry. And they minister to refugees who've come to this country, and they help them, give them ESL, give them uh, clothing and housing and all kind of stuff. And it is interesting. Just sit down and hear some of the stories. And most of them are believers who have escaped persecution in their countries. And I talked to one pastor. Burmese pastor. And he said, you know what? 
He didn't say it like that. That was me. I was in a refugee camp for 17 years. I lived in a tent for 17 years. Why? I escaped a war-torn, persecuted, persecuting, unjust world, and I found refuge in this tent for 17 years. Now we see in this picture the final tent. It's pretty good. But look what God has given in his church, in his community. This church community is not perfect. It's like that 17-year refugee camp longing for final placement. And I asked him, what what must have been to live 17 years? He said, I preached under a tree for 17 years. I lived in a tent for 17 years until I could finally go home here in America. He said, 17 years in that tent was more dignifying than one more year of mistreatment and death and suffering outside of the camp. One day, one time in your life in the house and God's community under the ministry of grace is better than any place else in this world of injustice. Because we are the people of God's shelter. And we should be marked by that bloodshed. Because we are called to fight and suffer for, to battle, to bleed, to bring justice to the world of people that we have come to see and know and understand their tears and struggle and injustice behind the tears. And like God on on this side of heaven, we seek to wipe those tears with justice and dignity. We're called to use our lives. Our blood-pumped bodies, who we are, where we are to combat the injustices of racism and classism, we stand up and bleed, if you will, for all all done against those we know are in the family of God's creation. Like in civil rights days, church people marched and went to jail and picketed and talked about injustice and sermons, injustice and sermons, stuff that won't make your evangelical church grow. We must hate that, in, that the incarceration rate for black males is ridiculously off balance. Stuff like that. We should rejoice that the rules for not being able to pay for bail have changed. Because people go into prison because they can't afford the bail money. And they get lost in the system. Yes. We are called to be the ones... Mr. and Mrs. Civil Rights who make the party go bad. Because here they come. They're not going to let us be stereotyped. They won't let us stereotype people. They won't let us talk bad about this community. Here they come. Yeah. Bring up the immigration issue again. Go ahead. Bring up the issues of gentrification again when people are talking about how their property values got so much better. Go ahead, bring up 
bring up questions and concerns concerns of police brutality and bullying. Bring up China's civil rights issues. Go ahead. Bring up President Obama's race as a possible issue in favorability. Go ahead. Let your black friends know that some of your best friends and even spiritual leaders are white and you trust them. Go ahead, make your friends uncomfortable about their ignorant and insensitive jokes. But I must tell you, you will start a fight and open a wound that only Jesus can fix. When you talk about justice and people feel either the oppressed or the oppressor, as you talk about justice issues, you know what stops things from going forward? (sighs) Why bring that up, man? Slavery was so long ago. I didn't own slaves. Come on, man. That's on that side of town. I got a black friend at work. I'm good. I got a black man's shoes on my feet. Right? I like sports. Yeah. When I was in high school, I played with a bunch of black guys. I've heard it all. My maid was black. Yeah, I'm going to tell you all a funny thing. I had a maid. We had a maid. She was white. Because I had a white maid, I understand white people now. <laughs> right? I hear those kind of things. We bring these things up. But we, because we believe that the wounds that come up in Christ, we offer a road to true repentance. What do we do with the guilt? We're not here to condemn. Christ didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to shame. So if you're doing this thing to shame people or condemn people or look like you're the smart liberal one now, you, you know, you're the city church cool person now, right? No, no, that's not what you're called to do. You're not called to bring shame or condemnation. So when you hear me talk about these things about bringing up justice issues, and no, what you're doing is you're saying, hey, look, you're giving the gospel. We are broken and we are sinners and we've been oppressed and we've oppressed other peoples. But guess what? Here's the good news. Jesus is a savior of sinners. And thus, this is the worship we call people to. I always wondered about this text. John says he saw everybody of tribe, tongue, and language. I'm like, that must be a really bad sounding song. Everybody singing in their own tongue? There's this miracle that happens. Where there's this kind of harmonized antiphonal praise of God as everybody sings in their tongue the song of the redeemed. We go 
with the message of salvation in Christ Jesus. So the world can finally find rest and peace in singing his praise and song of the redeemed. The harmony we look for is only found when we lift up the cross of Christ. He's redeemed us by his blood and we call people to worship. Fall down, world. Fall down, friend. Yes, you don't understand the issues. Yes, you've said some wrong things. Yes, you've thought some wrong things. Yes, you've sought the shame and condemn. Yes, you turn the TV channel instead of feeling. But Jesus, the scripture says this, that in this picture, even the ignorant, even the oppressor, even those who've ignored justice are in the picture too. Because Jesus has redeemed them. It's the picture of harmony. It's the picture of redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the sacrament. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. You minister Christ to us. And we can lay our burdens down. We can embrace the issues in our communities because we know you can handle it, Christ. Let us run to you in thanksgiving and worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.